Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Last week was such a wonderful celebration. It was a glorious day, and I didn't want it to end. I got to the end of the sermon, and I didn't want to stop. I got to the end of the singing, and I didn't want to stop. I just wanted to stay here with you all and sing. I just wanted to go to heaven right then and there. Um, I, it was an amazing morning. I loved it. I loved worshiping with you and fellowshipping with you all. We looked at Revelation 5, and I thought, let's keep that morning going. Let's keep that worship for our Savior going by looking at the chapter before. It's very similar. It's a similar picture. It occurs in the exact same location in the throne room of heaven. Last week, we looked at chapter 5, where Jesus had absolute control of history. He has that scroll. He alone is worthy and able to open it. We looked at the fact that apart from Jesus, only weeping exists. John was weeping because human history would not be opened. It could not be finished. It could not be uh, redeemed. Uh, But Jesus conquered so that we could conquer to open that scroll and to give us life. And therefore, he deserves all praise and all glory. What I want to do this morning is look back one chapter, very similar content, songs, crazy things going on, and I want you to see the glory of our God again. In chronological order in the book of Revelation, this is the second Revelation. Uh, Revelation, we get the title, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the title of the book comes from that first word, the revelation. Uh, that's one word in the Greek, and you know the word. Uh, it's apocalypse, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Revelation just means apocalypse. Apocalypse just means revealing. And so there's the first revelation that happens in chapter 1, where Jesus is revealed to John, the risen Savior, in so many different ways. Then we come to a second revelation, which is in chapter 4, where John is ushered into the throne room of heaven. The book of Revelation is laid out very nicely, very neatly. I know that there's difficult things in the book of Revelation, but it's actually more simple than it is complicated. Um, If you go through it, maybe one day we will uh, together. Chapter 1 is that first unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is who I am, and I am not done with my church, and I'm here, I'm risen, I'm working, I'm alive. Chapter 2 and 3 is the letters to those seven churches in Asia Minor, detailing what's going on in the current state of the affairs of the church and how they need to overcome uh, to reign and to rule with Jesus Christ. Then chapter 4 and 5, we saw chapter 5 last week. Chapter 4 and 5 is the throne room of heaven. It's another vision where John is ushered into that throne room and he sees. And then chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation. It's the unfolding of those end time events, the tribulation where that seven-year period where Um, Christians are persecuted heavily. Uh, The Jews are saved. There's a national salvation of ethnic Israel. And then chapter 20 is that the culmination. It's the millennial kingdom. Chapter 21 and 22 then is the eternal state. So it's just a, it's a laid out very nicely. There's some confusing stuff in it, but it's laid out nicely for us. And if you're in chapter one, there's actually a, a great outline in verse 19 Chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, namely me. Um, You have seen me. You know that I am alive. You know that I am well. You know that I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Write the things that you're seeing right now. That's chapter 1. And then write the things which are, that's chapter 2 and 3, 
And really, you can include chapter 4 and 5 because that's what's going on right now. And then write the things which will take place after these things. That's chapter 6 all the way through the end of the book. So write the things which you've seen, write the things which are happening now, presently going on, and write the things which will take place after these things. It's a nice little breakdown of the book. But in chapter 4, as we read through it, you will see two striking things that immediately pop out to you. The first is this is a striking picture of the glory of God. There's crazy stuff happening in this chapter. There's weird stuff taking place, stuff that we can't even fully understand. But the second striking thing that we will see in the chronology of this book is the placement of this chapter. It seems abrupt. At the end of chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, nitty-gritty, real, uh, diving into practical issues. Right off of the heels of that, John is taken into the throne room of heaven, and it kind of seems like an aside, like what, an abrupt movement. Why is chapter 4 where it is in this book? And does it have anything to do with chapter 2 and 3? I think it does. Because I think the vision that we see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the answer to the problems that are addressed in chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2 and 3, the problems are you need to stop doing things, you need to start doing things in order to overcome. And if you do not overcome, you will not have a part in the everlasting life with me. So the question is, how do we overcome? What are we to do? Do we try harder? Are we supposed to be better? Are we supposed to, as we heard in Family Bible Hour, just do right? Just start doing what's right. What are we supposed to do? And I believe the answer is given to us in chapter 4 and 5. We are supposed to set ourselves wholly under the authority of the one who sits on the throne and worship him. Take your eyes off your sin. Take your eyes off your situation. Gaze on the glory of God. So, though it seems abrupt, it's for a purpose. The problems that are in chapter 2 and 3, the answer, the solution is given in chapter 4 and 5. Very clearly, the answer is given in 5, where Jesus is the Lamb who is slain, and he has risen, and he has redeemed, purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, language. So I ask you this morning, have you lost your first love? Maybe you're like Ephesus. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling to be you know, on fire, we would use that term. Maybe you've left. Technically, it's left your first love, not lost. It's not like you lost your keys. You actually turned around and left your first love. Maybe you're spiritually dead. Maybe you're impure. Maybe you're compromising. All of the same things that happened in these two chapters to the churches in Asia Minor. What's the answer? How do you conquer these things? How do you overcome? The answer is you need to know God. You need to have a grand vision of who God is, a glorious picture of who God is, and let that inform everything you do. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, says this so well. He says, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources by bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. 
the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. Has God begun to rest too inconsequentially on our church as a whole or in your souls as an individual? The reality is we really only struggle with two problems in life. We can boil all of our sin down to two, two sides of the same coin of sin. One side is pride and one side is unbelief. And if you think about it, pride is thinking about yourself too much or highly exalting yourself beyond what you should. And unbelief is not thinking about God highly enough. And saying, I don't believe it. So the, the two sides of the same coin of sin are pride and unbelief. How do we conquer those things? How do we deal with that biblically? We see and we savor God in Revelation 5, Revelation 4, in the entirety of Scripture. That's what the church needs most to overcome pride and unbelief. And that's the glimpse that we're going to see today in chapter 4. We're going to see what's going on even now as we speak in heaven. Amazing picture. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who, sits, who, who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, we come to a a passage like this and we come to a sermon like this and I pray I pray out loud right now what I pray every Sunday morning in the back room. That we would hear a better message, a better sermon than I preach. There's no way to do justice to this text. Uh, But your spirit 
praise God, your spirit illuminates our understanding. He gives us spiritual eyes to see these things. And so I pray that we would hear a better message, that we would see a better vision than I could ever present. And that above all, Jesus Christ would be glorified. And as we see and savor the glory of God, we would be changed. Let the little things in this world, let the things that so easily compete for our affections and steal our vision and our gaze, uh, let those things fade away and have their rightful place in view of your amazing holiness this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. There are so many books out now. There are movies now. There are so many different um, people that have said that they have gone to heaven and come back to tell of it. Uh, I'm very skeptical of those things, namely because what they describe is nothing like the biblical record. Um, I have yet to, and I don't really read these books, but I, I read summary statements of them, and I read certain descriptions from them. I have yet to have somebody describe what John is seeing here. And what John is seeing here in chapter 4 is not unique to John. Ezekiel chapter 1, I don't think we're going to have the time to go through it, but you can go through it. Ezekiel chapter 1, it's actually even crazier than this chapter, but it's almost identical. Um, He sees these four living creatures. It's the chapter where he sees the two wheels that are spinning, the wheel inside the wheel that are just going. But he sees the throne room of heaven, and he sees all of these things, the jasper stone, the the sardius stone. He sees the emerald rainbow. He sees the crystal sea. He sees all of these different things. If you're going to go to heaven and you're going to come back to tell of it, it better look like this. Instead, most people belittle God and belittle Jesus. I have quotes in here. We don't have time to go through it, but there are some very foolish and silly comments about people that have supposedly gone to heaven and come back, you know, just skipping rocks with Jesus and and Jesus on a, on a lake, on a, on a sea, which again is problematic because there is no sea in heaven. Um, and, and Jesus says, says to them, I'm going to build a fountain for you. Okay. Like why does, why do they need a fountain? Um, the first people they come to are these strange individuals that they call saints. Well, the first thing that John sees and hears when he steps into the throne room is Jesus. That's the most commanding person. And, and that's why I, I don't really believe most of those accounts. What should stand out to us immediately in this chapter is what stood out to John, and that's why he talks about it 13 times in chapter 4 and 7 times in chapter 5, namely the throne. 11 times in chapter 4 it's described as the throne of God. There are two times that there are thrones that are attributed to the 24 elders. But the bottom line is this is all about the throne Verse 2, behold a throne, one sitting on the throne, and from the throne, around the throne, out of the throne, before the throne, around the throne, inside the throne. It's all about the throne. So what I want us to do this morning, we're going to be a little little different. Instead of going through some sort of an outline, this this chapter is its own outline. It's just, we need to walk through it. And uh, I want to do some exposition to help bring some clarity. Maybe there's some things that are unclear, and then just talk about the implications of what we're seeing and what we're learning here. So let's walk through it together. Verse 1, 
After these things, what things? After hearing the account of these seven churches in Asia Minor that are detailed for us in chapter 2 and 3, I looked, that's John, I looked and behold, a door is standing open in heaven. Interesting that there's a door in verse 20 of chapter 3 that Jesus is knocking on that's not being opened, and that's the door of the church. And the church is not opening up for Jesus. But it's interesting that Jesus opens the door of heaven for John here in verse 1. And the first voice which I heard, so the first commanding voice, is like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. And we know that because Jesus in chapter 1 has the voice of the sound of a trumpet, we know it's the same voice, so we know it's attributed to Jesus. This is Jesus saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Good little bookend verse here. After these things, John says, so this is John's chronology, after what I received in chapter 2 and 3, and then Jesus' chronology at the end of chapter or verse 1, uh, I will show you what must take place after these things that I'm telling you. So after chapter 5 is complete, these are the things that must take place, namely the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. So John is in heaven Um, Jesus has said, come up here. Some people attribute that to the rapture. I don't think that that's the rapture. I think that's just an invitation to John. uh, I actually think that there are three places in this chapter that the rapture is more clearly seen. We're not going to be able to dialogue over all of it, but um, that verse, come up here, I don't think that that's dealing with the church. It's dealing with an individual. You, John, come up here. I want to show you these things. So, verse 2, what happens? Immediately, I was in the Spirit. So, It's a vision, but it's not because he's there, but he's not. So it's this strange um, kind of in-between, much like Isaiah 6, where um, he sees, but it's a vision. So he's there, he's in the temple, he's in the throne room, he's in the temple. um, But he's also seen in a vision. So it's this kind of strange in-between state. The bottom line is only the Spirit could give you this vision. And behold... So look, that's what he's saying. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and look, look at what I'm seeing A throne was standing in heaven. Um, A throne was standing in heaven. That word standing kind of seems out of place. What it means is it's it's set. It's immovable. Um, If you want to if you want to take over a country, um, you just go to that country and you burn the throne, kill whoever's on it, and move that throne or create another throne where you want the throne to be, and now you reign. Uh, That's impossible with this throne. You can't touch it. You can't burn it. You can't move it. Standing just means set. It's fixed. God's throne is there, set and established in heaven. And one is sitting on the throne. This is a it's a strange thing because it's, again, a little bit anthropomorphic, like we saw in chapter five, because we know that God is spirit. So John can't literally be seeing a, a person that is sitting on the throne. Um, But there is uh, um, an analogy of what's going on here. God is reigning and ruling, as we saw even last week. So he's sitting on the throne. This vision is is capturing his eyes and his sight. Verse 3, he who is sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Some of your Bibles, I think the ESV translates it uh, carnelian stone. Jasper stone is like a diamond. It's just brilliant. It's beautiful. Uh, It's clear. It's flawless. And so John sees 
the glory of God as a flawless diadem that is just blinding him with brilliant light. And then he also sees this Sardius stone. Sardius is actually the stone where the city Sardis got their name from. It's a blood red diamond. It's a big ruby diamond. So John says, I see the brilliance of God's glory in a diamond-like refracting light. And then I also see the brilliance of God's glory in a deep blood red, ruby red that's pouring out from the throne. What are these things representing? They're probably representing the holiness of God in the jasper stone, the, the clear purity of God. And they're also probably representing the judgment of God and the sacrifice of God that is made to atone and appease that judgment in the blood red sardius. This blood red stone. What's going what's gonna to take place in the tribulation is the pouring out of the wrath of God. And I believe that this stone is representing that, that it's getting ready to be poured out. But it's also representing the fact that Jesus' blood covers those who believe so they do not have to fear the condemnation that others would fear. So he's sitting on this throne. There's a jasper stone, there's a sardius stone, and there's also a rainbow. But this rainbow isn't like any rainbow we've seen because apparently the biggest color in this whole rainbow is green. There's a rainbow around the throne, which again, Ezekiel says in chapter 1 is the same thing. And it's like an emerald in appearance. Um, Why green? I don't know. Why green is the only thing he's seen? Frankly, for me, the red stands out when I see a rainbow. Oh, it's a rainbow, red. Um, He sees green. Uh, Maybe it's the certain angle that he's standing at. Maybe it's the emphasis of that rainbow. Whatever it is, we know that the symbolism here of a rainbow probably takes us back to Noah and the covenant that was made that God would never again destroy the world with a flood, but instead, even in the saving process of the ark, he gave us a picture of what would happen in Jesus, that those who would find their safety and security in Jesus would be saved from the flood of God's wrath and the flood of God's judgment. So, throne, God is sitting on it. His holiness is seen in the jasper stone. His judgment is seen in the sardius. But also in the sardius, we see the redemption that is made in the blood of the lamb. And we also see the covenant that is made by God in the rainbow uh, around the throne. Now, it's interesting because this throne where are thrones found? Thrones are found in palaces, right? This throne is not found in a palace. There are several times that uh, in Revelation, this throne is seen to be in a temple. And you even know that from Isaiah chapter 6, that Isaiah is brought into the temple of God and God is seated on a throne in the temple. Why that? That's very important to note. And the reason why is because God is on a throne, meaning he's a king, sovereignly ruling, sovereignly reigning, but he's in a temple meaning that he's God, he's holy. We have access to him. There's a priestliness of what's going on. So that his throne is not in a palace, it is in a temple. John's caught up with this vision of what's going on on the throne, around the throne. And then as he sees, he kind of moves from who's on the throne in brilliant um, diamond-like light and the sardius and the emerald rainbow. And then verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their heads. 
Now, there's a lot to be said here. Verse 4. Um, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that in the millennial kingdom, these people and some of us will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So there is a, a throne, one throne, the throne, but then there are also little thrones that are around the throne, meaning that God gives leadership. He gives authority to other people as well. God is absolutely sovereign, but he also gives authority in some sense to these people who are seated on these thrones. Who are these people? There's really only two options, angels or people. Um, those are the only two options. Some people say angels. Uh, I don't think that it's angels. And the reason why I don't think that it's angels is because, number one, these elders, these 24 elders are sitting. So they are not flying around. They're not busy doing the Lord's work. They are at rest. Somehow they are at rest. Um, they are enjoying peace. Um, they have ceased from something. Angels are not ceasing their work in any capacity. Secondly, they're clothed in white garments. Now, we can instantly think of times when angels are, are seen by people and they are brilliantly white and their appearance is blazing, yes and yes, but they are never given white garments. That is only attributed to believers. Um, it's attributed in Matthew 22 in a parable that Jesus tells uh, of the garments of Christ's righteousness that are clothing sinners such as you and me and allowing them access into heaven. Finally, these golden crowns tell us much. These golden crowns are, there's, there's two words in the Greek for crown. There's a crown that God is wearing. It's a diadem. That's the Greek word for that crown. It's a crown that God wears. It's a crown that a king wears. It's a crown that a, a sovereign wears. This word for crown is not diadem. This word for crown is stephanos. And you know that word from other passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, I beat my body, I make it my slave so that I won't be disqualified. Why? Because there are some who do that, who discipline themselves to gain for themselves a perishable what? Crown or wreath, some of our Bibles say. And then he says, we are doing it for an imperishable wreath. That's the same word here. It's the word for a victor's crown. When you ran the race to its finish and you got first place, you got the crown as the victor. You got the wreath that would go on your head that would say you have overcome, you have won. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 says this, that um, laid up for us in heaven is a crown of righteousness. James chapter 1 verse 12 says that there's the crown of life that is awaiting us. First Peter chapter 5 says that we are given the unfading crown of glory. Those words crown, that's Stephanos, the victor's crown. So why do these people have a victor's crown? Because they've overcome something. They have done exactly what God told them to do in chapter 2 and 3. To the overcomer I will give. Even in chapter 3, uh, we see chapter 3 verse 5, we see that they are clothed with white garments. Chapter 3 verse 18, they are clothed with white garments. And we also see that to the overcomer they will receive that unfading crown of life. So who are these 24 elders? I believe that they are a picture of the church. I do believe that these are a picture of the raptured church, um, a picture of the church that has been brought to God. It's a church that's overcome. It's the church that has done exactly what God commanded them to do. I don't think they're angels. Some people think that there's 12, uh, 
from the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the main 12 people that represent the 12 tribes and 12 apostles. I, I think you can say that if you want to, but I think that this is just a representation of the church as a whole, redeemed by God. And we saw their praise given to God in chapter 5, a praise from somebody who's been redeemed. Angels don't overcome anything to receive a crown. Believers do, and they receive that crown because they have overcome. Out from the throne, verse 5, come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. We know that as the fury of nature. This is representing the fury of God. Again, about to be unleashed in the tribulation. There are flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, rolling thunder, and clapping thunder. God's fury is about to be unleashed on the earth. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven lamps. Now, you might think that's like a lamp stand, uh, like we saw in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, it's not lamp stand. Lamp literally means torch here. There's several other places we could go to show you that the word's actually translated torch. It's a big, burning ball of, of fury and flame and fire. So there are seven torches that are ablaze, that are on fire. And they're before the throne, and they're the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God, um, Zechariah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 11 describe this as the Holy Spirit himself. It could be a reference to seven being the, the completion, the perfectness of the Spirit of God. It also could be a reference in Isaiah 11 to the sevenfold attributes that are given, uh, that are categorized for us in Isaiah 11 about God's Spirit. Either way, this is the Holy Spirit. So these torches represent the Holy Spirit. And verse 6, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now again, we need to know, there, in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, we know that there is no sea. So there is no sea that he's seen here, and that's why he says the word like a sea. There's something that looks like a sea. Maybe it's a river. The bottom line is there is glass and crystal. There's, again, beautiful, clear, clean brilliance. And in the center and around the throne are these amazing creatures. Four living creatures. Some of your translations might say living beings. They're not animals, but they're not human. What are they? Um, you, can write, you can write there as a note. They, they are the cherubim. Um, they are amazingly special angels. Four living beings, the cherub, or cherubim is the plural of cherub. And they are in the center and around the throne. How that happens, I don't know. <laughs> they're in the middle, but they're also around. These guys are crazy cool. They have full of eyes in front and behind. They're full of eyes in front and behind. And John's going to say that again in verse 8 full of eyes around and within. So he wants us to know these creatures know a lot. They can see a lot. They're aware. The word actually cherub, it probably comes from a root word that means to guard. Similar to seraph, a seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, that's just transliterated for us because we don't know what that word really means um, and, and why it's supposed to be appropriate the way it is. We know that it means burning ones, um, we don't know why they're burning or what they're doing. or uh, That's why we leave it, just transliterated it. You know a Hebrew word. Seraphim is a Hebrew word. 
Same thing with cherub. We, we think we know the root of it, but we don't fully know the root of it. But we, we guess the root of that is a guardian, somebody who's guarding. I like that because it would make sense here. These four living cherubs are guarding the throne. Therefore, they have to have eyes that are never going to close, eyes all over the place so that they can see, they can protect, they can guard. And what are they guarding? They're guarding the holiness of God. They're guarding his character, his nature, his person. They're guarding who God is in the throne room of heaven. In verse 7, we have this description. There's one that's like a lion, one that's like a calf, one that's like a man, has a face like a man, and one that's like a flying eagle. There's a little bit of difficulty here because Ezekiel says that there are four cherubim in heaven, same picture, around, in and around the throne, but he says that all four of them have four faces. John seems to be saying that each one has one face. One looks like a lion. One looks like a man. How do we reconcile that? The way that I would reconcile it is this. Um, Ezekiel is able to see everything. He's seen around the throne. I think John is probably standing and he's looking at one angle. And with one angle, since he can only see one side of each living being, he's only seen one side of their face. Um, That could be one answer to it. The bottom line is there's a lot of symbolism going on here. And there's a lot that could be said about verse 7. Let me just try and simplify it for us. The lion. Why does the cherubim have a face like a lion? Um, The lion represents untamed power and strength. These angels have power beyond our wildest imaginations. Why a calf? Some of your translations might have an ox. Because there's a service that is being rendered by these angels, but it's not a wimpy service. It's a meek service. It's power that's under control. It's domestic service power and strength that's under control to serve the living God. Why a man? Because man has the highest ability to reason. And so these angels, these cherubs, have the ability to reason like no other. Why the eagle? Because they are swift, they are quick, they are speedy. There's so much that could be said about this, but Suffice it to say, there's a lot of crazy symbolism going on here. And the bottom line is these creatures, you don't mess with them. (laughs) And if you do, you are going to be destroyed. What happens? The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. You remember the six wings from the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. With six wings, they're doing three different things. Covering their face, covering their feet and flying. So two, they actually use to do something. Uh, the, the other four, the other two pairs are used just to save themselves and protect themselves from the holiness of God. I believe the same thing is probably going on here, maybe a little bit different because they have to be seeing what's going on around. So maybe they're protecting the eyes that would be staring at the holiness of God. But the bottom line is they do not cease to say day and night A song that is familiar to us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They praise God for his holiness, his otherness. There is no one like him. Yes, God is sinless, but so are the angels in heaven. They are holy as well. So God is absolutely holy, completely set apart from every creature, every creation, everything 
And that's what the 24 elders are going to say in verse 11. They're going to worship God because of him being God, him being creator. There's only two categories of things in the world. You are either God or you're not God. And so these angels and the 24 elders are going to be praising God because he is God. He's holy. He's almighty. The the El Shaddai. He is the one who is filled with power. So they're praising him for his holiness. They're praising him for his power. They're also praising him for his eternality, who was and who is and who is to come. We all had beginnings. God never did. And then verse 9, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, something will happen. This is why there's a picture of what's going on now and then what's going on later. John starts to write, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. What's this casting of their crowns? John MacArthur says, these 24 elders have no preoccupation with their own excellence. They have no concern about their own beauty and their own holiness, their own honor, their own reward. That means nothing to them. They are so lost in adoration that if indeed these are representatives of the church, they have been to the Bema Seat judgment as it were. They have received the reward that the Lord said was with him to give to them when he appeared. They have received whatever is involved in the crown of life, the incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the glory crown, the victory crown, the runner's crown. They have received for the gold and silver and precious stones of their lives those fitting eternal rewards. And as it were... They wear those rewards like a crown, but instantaneously, however, when the worship crescendo begins, soon after the church enters into the presence of the Lord, and as it becomes time to unfold God's judgment, lost in love and wonder, lost in praise, they divest themselves of all honor and cast it all at the feet of their king in voluntary surrender. These crowns that they won right they overcame to receive the victor's crown they're saying we couldn't have done it on our own it's not us it's god that did this for us through us and to us so they give thanks they cast their crowns before him and they say worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will They existed and were created. Again, only two categories of beings in the universe. You are either God or you're not. You are either creator or you are the created. God, the creator, knows us, created us, calls billions of stars by their name. So unfortunate in in our culture and context that science and faith are so often pitted against each other. It's those who know the most, scientifically speaking, about the universe that should just be resounding in doxological praise. Those who know the most should be blown away by who God is. And yet, I think there's a helpful word on this from a guy named Charles Meisner on Albert Einstein, he he wrote about Albert Einstein on why he was turned off by religion. And he says this, The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion 
although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must, this is so key, he must have looked up at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt the religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. I think he's right. How many churches can you go to today that put God into some sort of a box? He's a self-help guru. He's manageable. He's tiny. He's puny. That's not God. That's not the God we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that John is seeing and that we are seeing today. I love how they say, you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. I was reading... At the beginning of this calendar year, uh, starting my Bible reading plan again in Genesis, always trying to find new things, always trying to be blown away by God. And something hit me. When God's creating the world, so he, may, he says, let there be light, and there's light. But there's light and darkness, and he has to kind of separate them and do, do things to them. And so there's this light, but there's also massive darkness. And then he creates the world... And he creates everything in the world and on the world, and then he puts the sun, the moon, and the stars into existence around what he has already made. And I was just thinking about how, how cool that is that God says, I'm going to turn on the big light, and it'll just kind of be behind me, and I'm going to make this world in the dark, and not even with the stars and the, the sun shining on it, I can make it in the dark, do everything I want to do, and then I'm going to turn on the light and see my handiwork completed. If I try that, um, I, I used to have a practice where um, I had a, a notebook next to my bed because we always do our best thinking right as we're falling asleep, right? So uh, I'm falling asleep, and I get the best idea, and I would just not turn on the light. I'd write down what the idea was. In the morning, when I look at that, you, no one could decipher that. You could have the best experts of all hieroglyphics in the world, and they would look and go, this is unintelligible. You can't read this. But God says, I will make the universe without light, and then I'll turn the light, and it's good. It's perfect. Um, There's reason to praise our God. He is so grand beyond what we could comprehend. And so, there's our picture. We have a God who is standing and sitting and moving and active we have fury but also grace we have the completion interesting back in verse three the the jasper stone and the sardius stone those were the first and the last stones on the breastplate of the the high priest Um, maybe the 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 fullness of israel maybe jesus is uh, or god's already prophesied and he's saying yet again israel will be saved i'm not through with them i'm going to call them up We even see them being called up in Revelation chapter 7. The 24 elders are there and they're singing praises. And then this whole new group in white clothes just shows up and they say, who is this? They just showed up. Who are they? And I believe that it's the people coming up from the time of the tribulation. We have these crazy living creatures. We have the church that's represented singing. We have an amazing picture of our God. So let's just have six Six truths that confront us from this chapter, okay? We'll go through them quickly. Six truths that confront us. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. 
God is absolutely sovereign. There's no doubt about it. There are other kings, there are other presidents, there are other rulers, but God rules them all. Uh, President Obama is not sovereign. He's not in control. ISIS is not in control, nor will they ever be. God is in control. He is king, and he will never relinquish his throne to anyone. That's why his throne is fixed. It's standing in heaven. Number two, God is absolutely holy. He's sovereign. He created everything, and he did it in a perfect way. He's absolutely holy. He's not holy. He's absolutely holy. Three times, holy, holy, holy. There is no other attribute in all of Scripture that is attributed to God in a threefold manner like that. He's never called love, 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 never called mercy, mercy, mercy. Only holy, holy, holy is thrice said of God in the scriptures. That is because that is what stands out about God more than anything else. He is completely set apart. He is completely other. Angels are holy, and that's why I say God is absolutely holy. Angels are sinless. God is holier than angels. He's in a completely different category of being other and holy and set apart. We see that also in the judgment that's here. We see his sovereignty in the throne. We see his holiness, not only in the song that's being sung, we see it in these symbolic images of colors and radiation going forth and the the flashes of lightning and the sounds of thunder. We see all of that as a picture of his holiness. Why? Because our sin is worthy of his holiness destroying us. Sin cannot exist with holiness. So we talked about last week in our, in our sermon for Easter about, I think, Josh, you were the one that I had to punch in a basketball game. And then we talked about punching cops. And then we talked about punching the president and how same exact action, different consequence, different punishment. Why? Not because the action's any different. I did the exact same action. The punishment changes because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Yes, it does to a certain extent, but the punishment fits the one that you have offended. That's why if you have offended a holy, infinite God, then your infinite, eternal punishment is just because you sinned. Obviously, you haven't sinned in an infinite way. Your sin is finite in time and space, but it's against a holy, infinite God. God is absolutely holy. Number three, God's holiness is beautiful and dangerous. God's holiness is beautiful and it is also dangerous. We should see God's glory in this picture and be blown away. It's a beautiful picture, but it's also a dangerous picture, just as Isaiah found out. If you see the Lord high and lifted up, guess what? He can see you too, and you will find out, I'm a sinner, and I am worthy of being destroyed. Woe is me, I am undone. God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely holy. He is beautiful and dangerous in his holiness. Number four. If we do not adore God for his holiness, we will perish. If we do not adore God for his holiness, we will perish. Why do I say this? Those four living creatures are cherubs and the cherubim. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14 says that Satan used to be a cherubim. He used to be a cherub. In fact, he, I mean, technically he still is. He's not guarding God's throne. He's now a very powerful enemy against God. Why did he fall? Because he looked at God's holiness and he said, I don't like it. I want to be better than it. Instead of adoring God's holiness, he said, you know what? I don't think it's that awesome and I think I want a piece of it and I'm going to establish my own kingdom. 
That's why I say if we do not adore God's holiness, we will perish. That's why God threw Satan out of heaven. But there's hope. Verse 5, if we do adore God's holiness, then we will first and foremost see our need for a Savior. If we do adore God's holiness. So four, point number four is if we don't adore his holiness, we're in trouble. We're going to see his judgment and we're going to say that's not fair. We're going to see his holiness and we're going to say I don't like it. We're going to see our sin and say, who cares? What does it matter to God? But, number five, if we do adore God's holiness, so the opposite, then the first thing that's going to happen, if we stare and we say, you are beautiful in your holiness, the first thing that's going to happen is we are going to see our need for a Savior. Just like Isaiah did. He's in the throne room, in that temple. He's seen the train of God's robe filling the temple with glory, which is God's holiness on display. And instantly he says, woe is me. He doesn't say, I hate you. He doesn't say, I don't want a part of you. He's adoring the holiness of God, but it instantly makes him say, I am in trouble because I'm a sinner. If we adore God's holiness, we are always going to be humbled because of our sinfulness. We will hate our sin when we adore God's holiness. If you have a sin problem, which we all do, you have an adoration problem, you aren't adoring the holiness of God enough. Thomas Brooks, a great Puritan writer, says, O souls, when you shall see upon your dying bed and stand before a judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked. Its dress and its robes shall be taken off, and then it will appear more vile, more filthy, and more terrible than all of hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet shall appear most bitter, and that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly, And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to the soul. Oh, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell that the sight of sin, when its dress is taken off, will raise in poor souls. Sin will surely prove evil and bitter to the soul when its robes are taken off. Friends, you have two choices of when you want the robes of sin to be taken off. You can either have them taken off when you are standing before God on judgment day, and God says, you were pursuing this, guess what? It's worthy of your eternal condemnation. Or you can now see the holiness of God, adore his holiness, and say, there has to be a provision made for my sin because it's been unmasked. I see its terrible nature now, and I need it to be covered up in the righteousness of Christ. And that's number six. Adoring Christ is our greatest need It's our greatest privilege and it's our greatest end. Adoring Christ. So we adore God's holiness. We will instantly see our need for a savior. And then we will instantly be ushered into chapter five, which is worthy is the lamb who was slain. There has been a provision made for you. And it's the lamb of God who was slaughtered in our place. Adoring Christ is our greatest need. That's why we gather together. That's what church is all about. That's why we read. That's why we study. That's why we sing We need to adore him. That's why the 24 elders are singing. I love in chapter 4 and chapter 5, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger with crescendos of praise. It starts with four living creatures. So it's a little little barbershop quartet of some strange-looking things. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And then it opens up to the four living creatures, and then the 24 elders jump in. So we have 28 people that are singing. And then... Chapter 5, another song starts. Now we have harps that are brought in and golden bowls. So we have orchestration jumping in. And then we have 
angels joining, the myriads of myriads, and then we have everybody from every place and walk of life, under the earth, on top of the earth. Every, it just keeps on growing and growing and growing and growing. Adoring Christ is our greatest need, our greatest privilege, and our greatest end. Knowing God and enjoying him forever is the purpose of this church. It's the purpose of Christ Bible Church. It's what the church is doing in heaven, so I figure we should model our church on earth as the church is in heaven. It's what we must be doing on earth. We talked a little bit in Family Bible Hour. We, we all have things. We have things that we love. And we kind of get stuck in a niche, like, oh, I'm a missions guy, and I, you know, I'm a worship guy, and I'm a... You can just kind of fill in the blank. Can I just beg all of us and plead with all of us? Don't have things. Your thing needs to be Jesus. It needs to be Jesus. In so much as your other things can point you to Jesus and have you culminate on Jesus, that's fine. But, but don't have things. Jesus is your thing. Don't be known for, I am the blank guy. I do this, I do that. Say, I am the guy who adores Jesus. That's our thing. And as a church, if that can be what we are known for, then our presence in the community, in the neighborhood, in, in the world will just reverberate as we join with all of heaven. One day, we will stand where John was standing when he wrote this. We will see everything that he's seen, and it will all finally make sense. Questions will be answered. But we're not going to worry about those questions anymore. We will be joining in with their song day and night without ceasing. Holy is the Lord, worthy is the Lamb, forever and ever and ever. God, thank you so much for your amazing grace that allows us to see this picture of God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Spirit that you have given to us. We should all be destroyed, even now as we have seen your amazing presence. And yet we're not. We are alive because of your grace. And we are doubly alive because of Jesus Christ. We have been given everlasting life. 